The Athletic. Hi there and welcome to From the Rookery End, a Watford podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is Adam Leventhal back once again, the Watford correspondent for The Athletic. And I am alongside DCW, hello. Hello. And Mike, how are you? Come on, you <laughs> ones. I'm ready. Oh, I'm ready. Good. Yes, we're going to try and, um, I don't know, raise our, raise our volume and uh, raise our game in terms of the positivity stakes going into such a huge game against Leeds United at Vicarage Road on Saturday. It is a proper relegation scrap against a side that I reckon we owe them one. We really owe them one in a big game uh, after what happened way, way back in 2012-13. I still go back to that. I still go back to it. Do you still have nightmares about that one, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although, without it, we wouldn't have had the um, the, the incredible Troy Deeney moment, would mm. we? So, oh, yeah. uh it was a, a tough one to swallow, but uh, it's just the way of the world with football, isn't it? That game for me, actually, you, 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 you've asked Mike whether he has nightmares about it. It sort of, in a way, felt like it was a sort of living nightmare for me as it was happening because I was in I was in Las Vegas at the time, and so the time difference meant that it was something like I think it was maybe a seven a.m. or six a.m. It was really early, early, early hours. And I'd obviously I'd been out the night before, and I'd, I was giving it the big and saying, "Oh, I'm going to stay up, going to go all the way through. I'm going to, we'll, I'll find a find a screen somewhere. We're going to win. We're going to go up. It's going to be great." Of course, I I didn't make it through the night. I I collapsed in a heap on my hotel bed at I don't know three or four in the morning, and I sort of had and I was I kind of woke up. I was kind of and I'm, my dad was like texting me updates, and I was sort of half reading them through bleary eyes, and I was like, "What time is it? Oh, the sun shut the curtains. Oh, what's going on? Oh God." Who Who's, who's Bonham? Uh, and, you know, <laughs> you all know what happened. But, yeah, that's my memory of it. Well, that is actually, yeah, a, a, a living nightmare. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was awful. Imagine being there and watching it right in front of you. That was, oh, God, so many people will have vivid memories of that. But there has been so much water under the bridge since then. And there has been, you know, a lot of water under the bridge since we played Leeds United earlier on this season. Um, and we lost 1-0, of course, and that was the, the final game of the Shisco Munoz reign. And I think we are in a better situation in terms of the team that we are able to put out and the tactics that we have at our disposal right now. After the game against Liverpool, obviously it ended in defeat. We know all about that. Yes, the, the controversy maybe or maybe not about the uh, the penalty award. I know, Mike, from your point of view, you were like, it was, it was, just, a, it was just a rugby tackle. I don't know, why, I don't know what, if there was any issue about it. But I wanted to do a piece more about that and dissecting that incident because... I just felt that sometimes from a from a small club perspective these things are just they're given no one thinks any more about it we move on it's all about liverpool it's about them winning the title and it's just little relegation fodder and and get rid of them but i think there were some little elements of that incident that just deserved a little bit of extra scrutiny it might not have been the one to you know go oh this is the most controversial decision in the world and i don't think that i did that in the piece but just sometimes 
you just want to ask a few questions. And that's why I asked a few questions of the Premier League and they were able to explain a, thing, a few things to me. So if you haven't read that article, dig it out. It'll fill a bit of time if you're feeling nervous ahead of Saturday. But there is another piece that I wanted to talk about at the top of um, this episode. Um, and it is on a positive tip. The performances so far of Hassan Kamara, who came in in January from Nice, playing at left back, and he has genuinely given Watford a big upgrade in that position after some of the difficulties that we saw, especially against Liverpool, of both Danny Rose and Adam Messina trying to deal two of them with Mo Salah, and they they both pretty much failed, and it didn't work at all in that final defeat. But Hassan Kamara at Anfield, I thought, was fantastic and showed that dogged determination that has become a very sort of familiar feature of his game. The speed going forward, but also the speed going back and cutting out counter-attacks. I think he has been fantastic. He's committed. He is one to, to listen to as well. I think it's fantastic that he can speak so freely in English. And I did a piece speaking to the people that know him um, just to try and tell his story a little bit. And what I learned, which I hadn't really necessarily looked into too much, is the fact that he's had quite a sort of an up and down path to get to where he is. And people will say he's probably in a sort of a down position at the moment, having come to the Premier League and been in a relegation scrap. But I think it speaks of his determination on the field and off the field to be in this situation and to have had some of the experiences that he's had. And I hope that comes across in the piece. And there's there's just one little quote, and I start off the, the piece with it. And it comes from a, a source close to him. And he says, when you know the guy and his spirit, you're happy, but you're not surprised that it is happening to a guy like him because of his mentality and the way that he works. If all goes to pot this season, as many people are expecting, and many people are expecting it to end in relegation, at least there will be a little bit of a glimmer of light that this player has come in and made an impact and also made a connection with the fans. Do, do you guys agree? Yeah, I do. And and I think we're, we're speaking on Wednesday. It's a day where uh, season ticket renewals are out. And with that becomes a bit of optimism for next year, regardless of the division we're going to be in. And I think optimism um, is the word that I attach to, to someone like Hassan Kamara. I think he has signalled a sort of change in, in Watford's defensive fortunes, hasn't he? And he's reignited a little bit of the... Um, uh, the relationship really between the, the fans and the team because it was a bit it felt like it was a bit lacking um, and as your piece nicely illustrates adam he he is a he's a person that i think that we can all sort of look up to and admire and enjoy um his his sort of take on life as well as his um as well as his performances he seems to just get football he gets the importance of the relationship of the the fans and everything that you you read in that piece sums that up and i think whichever division we're in next year he's going to be a really really important member of the squad for a, for a whole host of reasons you mentioned your favorite quote ad mine was one towards the end of the piece never sell the bearskin until you've killed it <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely yeah. love it. And it made me suggest a little little bit of a menace about him as well, which we saw in his performance in the Ivory Coast. I loved the way that he was nipping around into into tackles against uh, some illustrious England players in that performance. So, yeah, I think it's a great piece, well worth reading. And I think it will um, 
just served to cement Watford fans' views on him as, as being a pretty good egg, really. He's made he's made a big difference on the pitch. He, he I think you, you describe him as all action, all action, full and full bloodied in the in the piece, Adam, which I like. Because he's think... been been killing bears. That's why he's bloodied. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he is all action, and he, he he's I think he's he's a great example for me of what a player can can kind of do if they are of a certain disposition. I think he has made a few mistakes in some of the games that he's played. He's had more good games than bad games, for sure. He's been great. I'm not criticising him. But there's been a couple of games. I think he was at fault for the for the Gallagher goal against Crystal Palace. I don't think he covered himself in glory in that third goal against Arsenal, which, um, which Martinelli eventually finished, you know, when Arteta had the ball near the, near the touchline for the throw-in and all that. He kind of let him off a little bit. You kind of don't mind it because he's 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 so wholehearted and he's giving it everything and on the whole playing so well that you kind of forgive him the odd mistake. Whereas some of the other players in that position, most notably Danny Rose, I suppose, over the last few years, you know, it just the the, the occasional mistake sort of is highlighted more because there isn't as much else to enjoy about him. And I, and it's just been great to kind of see a new signing have a smile on his face he's he's sort of always up for it he's kind of motions to the crowd and you know he's great and the only other emotion that I had after reading the piece actually was it was one of slight sort of regret really at what could have been if we'd got him in in the summer and because you've mentioned in the piece that there was the opportunity for him to come to Watford possibly on more than one occasion in the past but for whatever reason deals didn't get done or you you, you go to another target it's, these things are you know it's a movable feast it's, it's difficult to always get everything sorted at the right at the best possible time but you know him and Samir who've made a real difference I think to the team since they've come in in January but both of them you think oh god some of those games we threw away early in in the season you know most one of which being leads leads away that we'll talk about later you know these players could have made a real difference for us in in same way that you look at perhaps even look at Hodgson and think if he'd come in a bit earlier it could have made a real difference and and that's the lingering frustration for me with anything good that's happening with us at the moment it's like uh, it's good but oh, it could have just happened a bit earlier it's a good point though dave isn't it and i and i picked up on that it was i thought that was a really interesting little kernel of information in the in the piece as well we did try and get him in we're very very quick to say oh gino's got a complete blind spot when it comes to defenders why on earth aren't they refreshing this back line of ours we can see it's it's hopeless well as the piece mentions we did try and get him in and you'd like to think or you'd you'd expect if we tried to get this target in previously some of the other guys perhaps Samir you mentioned there um, DCW we've done that as well so just a little pause for thought perhaps there and, and, and just a little reminder that how difficult it can be to get the transfer targets you want actually over the line it, it doesn't stop it being frustrating but perhaps it is a little indication that perhaps we don't give enough credit sometimes for, for work on, on deals that don't come to, to fruition. I just wanted to pick up on that a little bit and, and to explain about the, the Kamara situation, which I learned a little bit more about. And I remember, you know, sending messages here and there to sources about um, Hassan Kamara a while ago. And I was checking back on my WhatsApp and just, you know, seeing the dates and things like that. And it was around about the time of, of um, when he joined Nice originally. And if you then transport yourself back, he moved from Reims to Nice when Nice were, you know, he'd had he was on the up playing for Reims and then he played for for Nice and it was a promotion for him. But Watford were obviously on the way down to the championship, so you can see why if there were two situations 
alongside each other. Do you want to go and play in the championship for a season or longer and commit to Watford? Or do you want to have a promotion and and play for Nice? You can understand why he would have done that. You know, there have been other players um, linked in the same position. He played alongside uh, Guylaine Conan, who was another left-back at Raz, who's still there. And he was another player that was looked at by Watford. But in the end... You know, they, they decided this summer, and, you know, these are these are ones that could have happened in, in previous windows. This summer, they went for Danny Rose. They went for experience. They went for someone who potentially was going to get back to playing at a higher level. And ultimately, that has proved to be a massive mistake. A massive mistake, but not one that I think you can wholeheartedly blame the recruitment team for making. You know, if you recruit someone early on in the window and you go, right, come on then, let's get back. Come on. It was a gamble, but it didn't pay off. But sometimes in this sort of situation, you have to gamble. And also, and I wanted to bring this in, actually, because I think it's it's a pertinent point. And this is by no stretch of the imagination me defending the agent that I'm about to mention at all. But this is a signing that was made, you know, in conjunction with Moji Bayat. This is a signing of positivity that has actually come from, from that relationship. And there was a lot of attention this week, obviously, on the amount of money that has been spent on agents' fees, upwards of £12 million. And as we explained over the weekend on The Athletic, yes, there is a lot of focus on who is doing the deals. And I think he was linked to to nine deals for Watford. You know, the, Emmanuel Dennis, Kayembe, Kalu, Kamara, obviously, who was brought in in that January window. Um, but there was a hell of a lot of signings that were made over the course of that period. I think it was 24 new faces and 31 transactions were made during that period. So, you know, obviously Watford have paid a lot of money outside of the top six. You know, they were seventh in that list. We finally made it. We're best of the rest. Yeah, yeah, we are best of the rest. <laughs> best of the rest, just, just short of a bit of cash. <laughs> We've mentioned, we've mentioned him. We've mentioned he who shall not be be named. I think John accused me of uh, of making him sound a bit like Voldemort, but he is a name who is who is who is cropping up a little bit more and more, and is is sort of breaking through into sort of mainstream conversation amongst Watford supporters. And I think especially on the back of that table where we did spend twelve million, the seventh most in the Premier League. Now, the number of deals that we've done with clients that are actually his doesn't seem to equate to the amount of money that, that's potentially going out that way, if, if that makes sense. Are we clear on just what his role is at, at Watford? Is he just an agent with a very, very close relationship to a particular club? Or is is there more to it than that? What what do we actually know about his connection to, to Watford and his role at Vicarage Road? Well, and I'll, I'll be brutally honest about this. I mean, look, I've, I've known about Moji Bayat for you know, a number of years. He's been around at the football club. He's not someone that's just chipped up in the last couple of months. He's been linked with Watford for a long, long time. You know, going back right to the start of when they got back into the Premier League in... Did I just say they for Watford? I did. When Watford got back into the Premier League, when we got back into the Premier League um, in 2014-15, he was doing deals, you know, back in those days. Some of them obviously didn't turn out particularly well. Um, however, I think it's very difficult. And I think this is this is important to say... There have been controversial stories connected with Moji Bayat, especially in Belgium. And we know that, and that is a fact, and that is an ongoing situation. However, unless we are able to really delve 
into the accounts and find out about specific transactions, which we did do with the Ishmael Assar transfer. Unless we know exactly where the money has gone and be able to follow the money, it's dangerous to assume simply because there is a shadow over someone that everything they do should be regarded as something to worry about. And I'm not saying that it doesn't deserve scrutiny. And believe me, I'm trying. But I was speaking to a source the other day, actually, who actually I thought would actually be in a situation to go, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't like the way he behaved or I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't very fond of his practices and all this sort of stuff. But he actually said, you know what? Out of all the agents I dealt with, he was actually one of the best that I actually dealt with in terms of his organization, in terms of the way that he prepared deals and things like that. So, and I found that quite surprising. Not to say, not to say that it does not des deserve scrutiny. However, going back to the original point, sometimes you will have an agent who is trusted by a, a, an owner. And, you know, Watford are not alone in that. There are so many clubs that have trusted agents. It's a relationships business. Exactly. Of course it is. Of course it is. However, the, the fact that sometimes with those relationships, you're going to have the rough with the smooth. You're going to have to do a favour here. Or can you take that player? And, you know, maybe I get a little bit of a cut because you're going to take that player. But I can also then introduce you to this guy who you really do want. Or I can make that deal happen because I've got that relationship at the other end or whatever it is. Look, let's be brutally honest. The, the, the way that it all happens is all about who you know and what you can do for someone and the kickback that you're going to get. When that starts to move into sort of the grey areas of business, then you have to start worrying. As we all know, you know, there will be situations and there have been situations in football in general, I'm not talking about Watford specifically here, where transactions do move into those grey areas and they deserve scrutiny. And look, trust me, I will look into things as best as I can. And I'm keeping a very close eye on it. And Mike, you're absolutely right. You know, the name Mojibayat is out there. People know about him. People see him in the director's box. He is there. It's not like he's trying to hide. If he is, he's hiding in plain sight. We all know he's there and he's all doing business with Watford. So yes, the flow of, of players via Mojibayat does deserve scrutiny. And that's something that I don't think, I don't think will go away. It's not uncommon for, for clubs to have these sorts of relationships with agents. There are plenty of other high-profile clubs. You know, look at how look how many, look at George Mendes and the sort of clubs he's been involved with in the past. And, you know, look at all the Portuguese players at Wolves. There are similar situations where you get a certain type of player turning up at a club repeatedly. And sometimes it's fine. And we shouldn't, as you say, Ed, shouldn't necessarily jump to conclusions and assume the worst. But this guy has been involved in some controversial things in the past. And there are, there are as you say, there are questions outstanding over some some of the situations he's been involved with in the past. People like you, journalists, are right to look into it. And I just think, in general, it's healthy, I think, as fans, to, to, to retain a healthy scepticism and ask the right questions at the right time. Because you don't necessarily want to put all your eggs into one basket. And, and if you feel like you are having to sign all the players from, the, from one sort of 
particular route, it you know it might restrict you as to what could el- what else could be out there. But as yeah, you say, absolutely. football football's built on relationships, just like many other businesses are, and there is probably a reason why he is so consistently involved in our recruitment. And we do trust you, Ad. I think you know in terms of looking into these things. So I think Good. you know, it's speak one, for yourself. It's one for you to <laughs> it's one for you to get on with in the background. Just a full stop on it from and from a completely from a fan's point of view and one fan's point of view, me. This sort of thing, it frustrates me for, for a number of reasons. And, and, and I know John, uh, our fellow uh, uh, from the Rookery End host, agrees with this. Ultimately, the whole agent situation is balmy. Because if a player hires an agent to source him the best possible deal at the best possible rates, you're paying that guy for service. You're, you, you, you're retaining that guy for service. You pay him. You're the one that gets the benefit. You should be paying him out of that out of that deal. The, this whole thing about clubs paying paying agents is 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 arse about face, as far as I'm concerned. And also, I think it's been sort of um, manoeuvred into a situation that that benefits agents because, as you you mentioned there, Adam, you you said, Dave, it is a relationships game, and it, and they say, well, if we can move this player to you, then you're going to have a chance with this guy in six months. It's the tail wagging the dog, and I, and I know this isn't reality. I'm talking from a from a supporter, very much from the outside looking in. That's the out the, the tail wagging the dog. A football club should be able to say, no, we will attract this guy uh, on the on the terms that we can afford, on terms that are attractive, because this is who we are as a club. This is where we are currently, and this is where we're going. I know that's a pipe dream, but that is why I think supporters get really really frustrated then worried and concerned about these sort of deals when it do- when it doesn't work out so it's i think the whole the whole thing as a as an industry it stinks really because if i have an agent that gets me a new job I would pay the I would pay the agent because they well you should, done. You mate. should you have an agent, really, Mike. No matter work you well, do. Well, yeah. Well, it, actually, my phone's just going. One minute. <laughs> oh no, that's it's fall, fallen through. Give Modgy a call. Out. Perhaps you could be the next <laughs> signing. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think I just wanted to 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 voice the the, the fans. I think you're right. I, I think the other thing to say is that when you're having this sort of season that we're having. It's the sort of thing that gets lumped on to the pile of stuff to sort out and to be frustrated about. Whereas, as you say, Adam, this guy's been around for a long time. I hadn't heard of him really since the last 18 months when it's all been going, you know, when it's all been going tits up. And when he, when we, when he was signing players from him when we were on the way up, it was you, you didn't hear about it. It was fine. So, and again, I'm not dismissing it. There, there may be some legitimate um, reasons to look into these sorts of things. And you, that's your job and you'll do that. But... I think you guys sometimes got to have a bit of perspective. And f- football is a murky, murky business. And Watford, you know, is that, this isn't a Watford thing. There are the agents and everything, all, all that side of the game, it, it, very white, you know, very well documented. It's a murky business, and you can go and look into it if you want. There's plenty of people who've done a lot of work on this sort of stuff, but by by no means is is this a sort of problem that's unique to Watford or Gino or any of the people involved. A Watford FC podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is from the rookery end. Another word on everyone's lips, accounts. Watford's have dropped uh, and there's some pretty big, yeah, dropped in more in more ways than, than one, I guess. But um, there's some pretty big numbers out there. We spoke about it a little bit uh, on the weekend with the, with the guys and I admitted then that it's certainly not my forte. Adam, you've done a piece on the, on the Athletic that looks into the some of the numbers and what they might mean and 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 the result and why they've they've happened, why they are what they are. Can you explain to to me and and to people listening at what it looks like? Is there anything to worry about? I guess is the is the question that I, w- I want answering. Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting question because 
obviously, if, if you ask about whether there is anything to, to worry about, you have to first take into consideration that these are accounts that were covering a period which there was a lot of worry. Obviously, there was a lot of worry attached to it because, you know, this covered a period when it was the back end of the 2019-20 season. There was a couple of games left uh, of Project Restart and then a full season behind closed doors in the championship with no fans. And within that, you've obviously then had um, a 50% reduction in your central payments, i.e. a parachute payment. So your turnover is obviously going to be down and that's what these um, accounts clearly show but at the same time you had the, the the covid uncertainty which not only had an impact on on gate receipts it had an impact on your commercial behavior sponsorships um, and confidence as well in the market and also had an impact on how clubs were were trading in the market as well and how players were viewing their futures as well. So, you know, you had some players that Watford had at the beginning of that season going into the championship, the likes of Etienne Capu, that no one came in and, and signed at the time. He didn't go until the January. You had Troy Deeney, who many people thought would be snapped up, but wasn't a viable proposition for anyone at that time. And he obviously stayed for the remainder of the season. Yes, he was he was injured. But Watford were having to do a lot of cloth cutting. And I think that that's what really is highlighted in these in these figures. Obviously, that the the you know the top line figures of, of a twenty one million pound um, loss, it wasn't actually as big as the the previous loss in the accounts. So they were able to do quite a lot of you know savvy financial manoeuvring, but the turnover and that's the big thing. The turnover was obviously down sixty three million pounds from one hundred nineteen million to fifty seven million. And the big hits were obviously to the, you know, the gate receipts, uh, sponsorship and advertising, um, media and broadcasting down £45 million, commercial down £8.8 million. But they were able to mitigate those losses by being able to sell players. And, and we knew that at the time. And that's almost like the, the safety jacket that Watford have by having that relationship with, with Udinese. And the, the players being out on loan, for example, you know, with Luis Suarez and Pervez Estupinan, to just be able to go, you know what, right, well, we need to, we need 50 odd million. Let's sell, let's sell some players. Some clubs don't have that opportunity when they get relegated. You know, I was speaking to someone the other day and they were saying, you know, teams don't really, aren't massively attracted to players that have just been relegated. It's a, it is a black mark against your name. The situation that we're in currently if you sort of look at the accounts that have been released and you now look at the situation that we are in and there has been a lot of debt that has actually been dealt with since these accounts came out, Watford potentially going down to the championship now are actually in a far better position in terms of their wage bill, certainly. You know, the, the wage bill was sky high in relation to the turnover. They were paying out more money than they actually were getting in to the players because they were on Premier League wages, etc, etc. Now they've cut the wage bill and they do once again have saleable assets, especially Ishmael Assar. 
and we'll talk about him a little bit more in a moment because I think we that that is a key key point in this whole sort of financial discussion. The Ishmael Saar transfer, Saar, Dennis. You'd hope between those two that you could bring in probably similar amount to what they brought in for. Um, Suarez, Estupinian, Decore, Pereira, probably around the fifty million pound mark. So, with a with a a more sort of robust wage structure and being able to sell a couple of players and maybe a few more that might want to go and they have to deal with that sort of uncertainty, Watford should be able to replicate what they did before. Now, obviously, there won't then be the massive amount of borrowing that they had to do in these accounts because they simply you know they were they were turfing out more money than they were getting in because they didn't have anything coming in they didn't have their um they didn't have any sort of gate receipts to keep the cash flow going and things like that so overall we are in a worrying situation because any relegation brings worry and obviously you are still burdened with a, a decent amount of debt which the club still holds but it's about being able to service that debt and currently they are able to do that and they will have confidence having been in the Premier League and having got a full season of of Premier League money that they will be able to service it and they will have to once again cut their cloth accordingly. The big thing is, it's whether you, you know, if you can go down and come back up again, then that's all right. You keep on boing boinging here and there, yo-yoing up and down, you're all right. You obviously want to sustain yourself and you want to maintain your status. That's That's the key thing. But if you don't, if you've got mechanisms to try and balance the books, which some clubs don't have, then that's when you really struggle. But Watford do have do have that 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 those techniques to be able to balance the books, which I think is something that we should be grateful for. You know, in adversity, we do have something something to sort of cling on to in terms of being able to balance the books. There's lots of hypotheticals, isn't it? But I guess from a supporter's point of view, it's again like we were talking about the agents issue. It's one to keep a, an eye on and, and we're, we're right to, to, to ask questions and to try and understand it as best we can. Now, I mentioned before um, about the, the Ishmael Assar transfer. And, and I think since, you know, the last time we did a midweek podcast, we haven't actually had an opportunity to speak about the piece that I did about the the SAR um, situation with Wren, Watford and Wren ending up at the Court of Arbitration for Sport over the Ishmael SAR transfer. And I think that this is key in the, in the whole discussion, as I mentioned, that ultimately, when you make a signing like Ishmael SAR and you commit to spend £30 million on a player, plus add-ons of you know roughly 400,000 pounds a pop every sort of 10 10 games that he plays or 15 goals and assists combined that he he pays you know that's where you start to get your your add-ons and and why initially when he was signed people were saying oh this is this is almost like a 40 million pound transfer down to the down to the add-ons that potentially uh, Watford were were going to have to pay out to Ren now during the covid situation and just after relegation, Watford had a stage payment that they had to pay out to Wren. And in the process of that situation, Watford were unable to pay on time. And they asked for a little bit of extra time. Wren said, well, hang on a minute, we're going we're gonna to charge you interest here. And Watford said, just give us a bit of extra time. But Wren weren't happy with that because they themselves were in their own difficult situation because the, the French football rights contract was had folded, they were really short of money, so they were needing money in. It was like, well, if you owe us money, we need the money now, thank you very much. But at the same time, Watford, they couldn't pay this money 
straight away. So it ultimately led to it going to FIFA and then being passed on to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And in the process of that, you get an opportunity to look at this document, which profiles exactly what the SAR transfer uh, was broken down into. And it makes really interesting reading because you don't often get to look in. You know, we're talking about unless we can follow the money and all this sort of stuff earlier on. You don't often get to look in detail at how a transfer is, is broken down. What it reminded me was this wasn't the sort of signing that Watford normally did. This was a signing that reflected, we've just been in the cup final. We feel that we're an established Premier League team. We can now go out there and spend that sort of money. And f- and the sort of money that, that fans would go, brilliant. This is a sort of signing that really takes us to the next level. No one was complaining when Watford signed Ismail Assar. But then the worst happens. Watford crumble, a, a lack of confidence, the, you know, the dressing room are, um, is in disarray. There's managers coming and going all season. And it's a nightmare season. And then they're lumped with having to pay these big stage payments in the championship to Wren. And they're thinking, bloody hell, we have basically committed to paying a hell of a lot of money for a player. that, And we don't normally do that. We normally sign a, a rough diamond and polish him up and sell him for 30 million. We don't normally buy the finished product. It was a perfect storm. You know, you sign a player, you push the boat out, you, you, you're high on your success that you've had, you go for it, you think, right, we've got it in ourselves to do this. And then, you know, who can predict that there's going to be a, a global pandemic that would force games to be played behind closed doors for the best part of 18 months? We obviously didn't expect to be relegated, but we were. We made a lot of mistakes. We were relegated. They obviously, they look. They obviously didn't expect to be relegated. They made plenty of mistakes, and you know, you know, there you are. Your piece was very interesting. I thought it was. I thought it was just an interesting insight into just how some deals are structured. The headline figures are just very rarely the actual reality of the situation. You, you know, you you see thirty million pound transfer, forty thousand pounds a week, and all these things are they are much more complicated than than us in the media often portray them really. So it was interesting to see just kind of a little peek behind the curtain as to how a sort of deal like this is structured and it is it is pretty tricky. And from a fan's point of view, I think it's it's well worth a read because it's easy to think, right, well, we, if, we, if, for example, if we sell Ismail Asar for, let's say, 35 million quid in, in the summer, the instant reaction from a, from a supporter's point of view, say, right, we've got 35 million quid in the bank, what are we going to spend it on? Or where has the, the 35 million we got for Ismail Asar gone? What have we used it for? Where the reality is, it doesn't work like that, does it? You don't sell a player and the money arrives in your bank account the, the next day. So, yeah, a, a fascinating read. And like you say, Ad, it's something that you don't usually get to, to see. And to see all the intricacies of it really is a bit of an eye-opener as for, for everyone, really, even if you're not a Watford supporter, just to read as to how these deals are actually structured and the amounts of money that change hands over, over a, a period of time. Uh, really, really interesting, and it provides welcome context, I think, into into the financing of uh, of deals and and what it actually means for clubs and what they're available, what they, what funds they have available. You know, you mentioned there if Sar goes this summer, there will still be you know nine million pounds there or thereabouts that Watford still have to fork out, so they will want to make at least you know a, a profit on that. They will also obviously want to make because of how football works, you want to make a profit on the on the original. Uh, amount that you paid out. But obviously, these are all sort of retrospective things. And the one thing that you you will know is 
that when you hear a member of the hierarchy speak in the terms at which Scott Duxbury spoke about at the end of the championship season, when he was saying that it was looking pretty dicey for a time, you know full well that when it comes out of the mouth of one of the hierarchy, that is the here and now. And there was a great amount of relief talking about getting back up into the Premier League because it could sort of right a lot of the wrongs, financial wrongs or financial difficulties that they faced. And it'll be interesting to hear, you know, what Scott Duxbury or if we hear from anyone else in the, in the hierarchy over, um, you know, the next few months. And fingers crossed, they can talk about getting another 100 million in the, in the coffers. Um, but we will only really know and we will only really get a, a proper gauge in terms of the the financial situation at the club as and when we hear from from the hierarchy so that's that's what we have to wait for and then we will actually get the the here and now take rather than this retrospective take which you always get by looking back a couple of years at the accounts this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Part of the Athletic Podcast Network. This is from the Rookery End. So let's dig in to our next opponents, Leeds United, and the man that knows everything about them is Phil Hay. He covers Leeds for The Athletic. Phil, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me on. As I was sort of plotting to to get you on, I had this vivid memory of sitting alongside you at Ellen Road. I looked alongside me, just to my right-hand side. You looked back and you went, yeah, this team are going down. And you weren't (laughs) talking about Leeds United. You were talking about (laughs) Watford. And to be fair, and this is, you know, I'm not taking this in isolation and, and causing a, you know, a, a problem with it. At that moment, Watford, when they had just been beaten at, at Ellen Road in that 1-0 defeat, they did look like a side that were they're heading in that direction, of course. And now look at us. Absolutely yeah. superb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're flying now. Look at us. What do you know, Phil? <laughs> but Phil, from your point of view, yeah, it's not been going well for Watford, but it's also not been going well for Leeds United. And the gap now is what eight points Watford do have a game in hand how are Leeds actually viewing this one is this is this one just to sort of go right finally we can just put the relegation scrap at arm's length 
and win at Vicarage Road and, and then that will be job done? Or is there is there nerves attached to this visit to, to Vicarage Road? There are nerves attached, obviously. I mean, that, that kind of goes without saying it at Leeds. And this this is probably the, the last occasion for Leeds to be very Leedsy and and to do what they do have a tendency to do, which is to suddenly open the door again. I, I think if, if they win at Vicarage Road, then it, it will, as you say, be, be pretty much done and dusted. I mean, you can work out the mathematics of it, but, uh, but once you start, looking at the number of points that the the bottom three have taken um so far this season and the number of points that they would need to claw back to to move past leads if if the gap did stretch to 11 it it's realistically not not going to happen so this is the weekend when they can kill it and this is very much the weekend when they can slam the door shut it's worth remembering that game in, in October that that was Leeds' first win of the season. It was you know it was the first weekend of October. Leeds had not started well at all. It had been not the first period of, of poor form under Bielsa, but it was the first time they'd started a season under him like that. You know, struggling to get points on the board and, and making little progress up the table. The big surprise for me about Watford on that day was that they came to Ellen Road and were so tepid. Um, and offered so little against a, a team who, you know, were, were starting to come under pressure and, and who the crowd were looking for results from and looking for better performances from. There was just a, a real dearth of quality um, in the Watford team. And, and I don't think anybody could say that Leeds have been awash with quality themselves this season. That, that hasn't been the case. Um, but certainly looking on that afternoon, I, I felt that Watford were in more trouble than Leeds. And, and that's still as it seems at the moment. Phil, can I just ask, it feels like there's a few few injuries have, have come back into contention, haven't they, for Leeds? So in terms of Watford fans looking at this fixture, should we be more worried about playing Leeds now than we should have been perhaps a couple of weeks ago? Good question, that. And, and yes, they have eased slightly without clearing up completely. I mean, it's that old thing of one door opens, another one slams in your face. And they've got Calvin Phillips back. They've got Liam Cooper back, who had a, a very good game, I thought, against Southampton last weekend. With with Cooper, he, he was a mainstay at centre-back on the Bielsa. Um, and I think technically it's fair to say that, that he does have a ceiling, but he's an extremely good leader and, and organiser. And, and I do think that, that he's part of the glue that, that holds Leeds together. On the flip side, they've lost Patrick Bamford again to another foot injury. And, and at best, Bamford is going to play in the last couple of games this season. I suspect we, we might not see him at all now um, until pre-season, unless Leeds feel like they, they really need to push him at the back end of it. So, yes, it, it's not quite the, the injury list as it was in certain periods under Bielsa. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm still struggling to think of a season when I've seen an individual club suffer as many as Leeds have. I think somebody was saying to me that you know, they've already, by the time Bielsa left in, in in February, they'd already had twice the number that the average Premier League club expects to have in a single season. And, and that was before Bamford with this latest injury. It was before Tyler Roberts picking up a, um, a, a bad hamstring problem as well. It, it, it has been absolutely relentless and it's, it's been endemic. And it is, I think, moving forward, one of the things that they're going to have to try hard to address. You know, in certain areas, they are stronger. I also think they've got the benefit of a little bit of form behind them, certainly in terms of results. And seven points from the past three games has made a massive, massive difference to what was, quite honestly, a really worrying situation after the, the defeat they had at home to Aston Villa. Phil, I'm, I'm looking for some green shoots of hope for Watford fans here because it sounds like everything's sort of on the upwards trajectory at Leeds since Marsh has come in after those first two defeats, unbeaten in the last three. Previously under Bielsa, I, I was looked at Leeds as a team that would perhaps be vulnerable to teams who were good on the counter because of the way that you play so open. 
how has the style changed, if if at all, since Marsh has come in? And what areas could Leeds be vulnerable um, at in this game at the weekend? I'd be wary of thinking that because the, the results have been great, that the performances have, have been perfect, um, particularly in the games where they've picked up points. I mean, the, to take the... The 3-2 win at Wolves is, as an example. I mean, I'm, I'm still struggling to understand what went on at Molyneux. The Leeds, Leeds had about five injuries on the night. They were 2-0 down until Jimenez got sent off in the second half and, and then they won that 3-2. And I think to pretend that there was a massive amount of structure or kind of tactical strategy to that win would, would be wrong. You know, it, it was just one of those crazy games in the same way as they, they nicked an injury time win over Norwich the previous weekend. Sometimes in, in those games, and particularly in the, the position Leeds are in, it, it, it did come down to results and that was all, all that mattered. But we are still sort of waiting for Marsh's style to, to shine through really clearly. I think it's becoming pretty obvious that one of the big things he's looking for is certainly in an attacking sense is very, very quick, fast transitional play. Um, that is how I think he, he envisages Leeds scoring a lot of goals and, and creating a, a lot of their chances. But there are issues. They've been exposed a few times out wide. Um, there's certainly an issue, you know, with with the fullbacks and the positioning and the, and the structure of the team there. That is one way in which in which sides have got at Leeds um, since Marsh has, has come in. And there was a period of the game against Southampton as well where the low line midfielders. It was a, a sort of four two three one on Saturday, and the low line midfielders became a bit detached from Rodrigo in front of them, and Southampton started to get a, a foot into the game, and and I think deservedly got themselves a, a point from that. So it is very much a case of a new coach feeling his way in, um, and and I think trying to make incremental changes rather than to, you know, to to totally overhaul everything. But the man-for-man system is gone, you know, it is far more zonal now. Um, and, and there is a different structure to the team, they're more narrow than they were under Bielsa, who who loved his wingers and, and loved playing playing with width. But I still feel that we'll be we'll be looking at next season really before we're able to say what a Marsh team is, is 100% about. That almost sounds as if you're looking forward to a, a Premier League season with uh, with Marsh in charge. Watford can't even think that far, which is uh, which is obviously a real shame for us. One final point. I just wanted to get your feeling on how Leeds have done away from home because Watford have been really, really poor. Well, they haven't got the results at home. They've only, the last time they won was back in, in November. Do you think there will be even more freedom to the way that Leeds can play away from home, thinking that we've we've got less pressure. We know that the Leeds fans, as Watford fans know well, they can be very vociferous away from home. I'm just shuddering, thinking back to, to 2012-13 and it, uh, in it all going to pot with Jack Bonham in goal and all that. Do you, do you think that they will play with a, with a freedom and a, and a confidence? That was an amazing game, actually. It's, it must be the longest... No, it, wasn't. Strength. it wasn't, Phil. It was awful. Stop it. It, it, it must be the <laughs> longest stretch of um, injury time I've ever seen in a game, and, and to be set up on like that on the on the last day was um, was was incredible. Really, it has to be said, and and I, I've said this many times on my podcast. I think the crowd at Ellen Road have been incredibly supportive, given form and and given the the position in the league, and and the fact that you know suddenly they'd swerved from three years under Bielsa where everything just seemed to be on this exponential rise to, to suddenly backward steps and, and people starting to wonder what, what direction it, it was heading in. 
And you couldn't say in any way that the form away from home has been better than the form at Ellen Road. They, they've picked up more points at Ellen Road. They've conceded fewer goals there. Um, that, I think, was the, one of the, the big priorities for Marsh coming in, was to make sure that, that they were no longer a side who looked vulnerable to conceding 4-5-6, which was kind of how the point at which it had reached under Bielsa in his, his final week, albeit against some, some very, very good sides. Potentially, there, there is... You, you, you do find certain teams benefit from the advantage of, of not having a home crowd around them but I don't think Leeds are particularly one of those and, and I see this as a really difficult game on Saturday I think there's plenty riding on it um, and I think the players will know there's a lot riding on it too So that was the great Phil Hay on From the Rookery End and you can uh, catch his podcast if you want to <laughs> if you want to bathe in the world of Leeds for whatever reason do catch it uh, on The Athletic it is called The Phil Hay Show and obviously you can read all his words on The Athletic um, and I just wanted to finally just pick up on, on a, a point that Phil made there about the fact that Leeds and their fans and we know all about they are so supportive and it almost feels like this is the start of the the crux of the season and having been at Ellen Road earlier on this campaign when they were really under the pump, as Phil mentioned, and they weren't winning games and they were struggling, the fans carried them through. And there was pockets of noise starting all over the stadium. And I know it's a bigger stadium and I know that they, I don't know, they're a different fan base. We know that. It's almost like you feel now on Saturday, Watford fans, wherever you are, you need to sort of step up. Don't wait for the 1881. You need to step up and make that noise. And yes, it needs to be fed from the performance on the pitch. I understand that. But it almost feels now we have to be the ones, I can't do it in the press box, obviously, but you guys can be the ones that, that start the fire. Don't wait for the fire to be started on, on the pitch. Is that fair, gents? Why don't you give it a go, Ed? You say you can't do it in the press box. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I know. I may as well. I may as well. Just give yeah, sit next to Phil. Who are you? Who are you? You're not seeing <laughs> yeah. anymore. You do get that feeling sometimes, and I and I know it's it's diff it is different. And I remember speaking to the, on the from from the rookery end way before I was even connected with it, coming on as a guest, and I was speaking about how Leeds fans are. You know, we need to be more like Leeds and be more like Leeds fans. Come on, we've got this is it's all or nothing now. Whatever you think about the hierarchy and all that malarkey, come on. Let's get let's let's get stuck in. That's the phrase. All or all or nothing. If we if we're, we're going to be in with any chance of scraping out of this, it's going to happen at home. Uh, and to be in with any sort of chance with that Vicarage Road needs to be rocking. We need to make it a good atmosphere for the players for the for the outcome of the game, but also for our enjoyment as well. I've I've banged on about this enough in the in the last couple of weeks, so I let I let DCW put a full stop on it. But we've got to try and enjoy it as supporters. So the more we can do to to, to raise the roof, if you like, the better. And just one note on the on the eighteen eighty one. I think it's easy for us to mention the eighteen eighty one as a as a sort of almost like a um, abstract thing of people that are just expected to make noise when actually they're just a group of uh, a group of people who are doing their best and I did see a, a post on I think it was on their Facebook group sort of asking for, for help for volunteers for a whole range of stuff whether it's just help putting out flags and that sort of stuff and it's very easy for people to talk about the 1881 without thinking about how much work dedication and effort is required to actually make what they do happen so a little plea from me, if anyone has got time or would like to get involved in, in that side of things, then do look them up. They're obviously on Twitter and on, on Facebook and, and get in touch and help because I think it's easy to forget that people doing it in their spare time, basically for the benefit of us to make the atmosphere better on a on a match day and it doesn't just, just happen. But yeah, if you are there on Saturday, if you are there the week after that, bring your singing voices, basically. Yeah. 
well, the week after that might be, we may as well not bother if we don't get a result this weekend. Um, I'm nervous, you know, increasingly as we've been recording this podcast, my uh, my nerves, have, I've just, I can just feel them creeping, creeping up. We do have to try and enjoy it on Saturday, but it's going to be a really difficult one to enjoy unless we somehow like score an early goal and, and somehow miraculously cruise to victory. It's going to be tense. It's going to be nervous. And, and I suppose that, as you've just been saying, we have a job as supporters to not let those nerves and that tension transmit to the players. The players have got to do their bit first and foremost. They've got to get up for the game. They've got to attack it with the right spirit. They've got to try and try and win the game, obviously. But we have got to support them. It is all or nothing. One last go and, you know, let's see what happens. But I, 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 I am feeling nervous already. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I am. I am too. But Come on, we've got to we've got to go into this and uh, maybe use the nerves in a positive way. Yeah, be a part of it. Be a part of it, gents. Enjoy Saturday, Dave. Don't let the nerves get the better of you. I try my best. And Mike, look forward to seeing you there. Bring it on! Come on, you Goldens. Enjoy the game, everyone, and we will be back after the game. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed. We're talking about a vital victory in this relegation scrap. The Athletic.